Hi, this is Jan Kabili. Welcome to The Fix, the podcast that's all about post-processing, the things you do to your photo after the shoot. My very special guest today is John Paul Caponegro. John Paul is a fine artist. He's a bit of a philosopher. He is a photographer, of course, and he's also a top-tier workshop instructor. And we're really lucky to have John Paul with us today to share a little about his approach to printing, in particular, soft proofing and proofing your work before printing. Hi, John Paul. How are you? Hey, Jen. It's nice to see you again. It is great to see you again. It's been about a year since we did a podcast together, I think. I think that's about right. You're the reason I end up on Google, Google Plus Hangouts. I know Google Plus Hangouts are great, and I'm very honored to have you as a guest. I know you're a very busy man, so thanks for taking time out. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Speaking about you being busy, I was taking a look at your website, johnpaulcaponegro.com, and I was blown away by the schedule of workshops that you have there. Can you tell us a little bit about where you've been teaching and what you've been doing in the last year or so? Uh I'm thinking more about this fall than I am about what just happened in the past, so I can tell you what's coming up. Um, about to start the international travel. We were a little bit light on international travel this year, which was great. Kept me in the studio producing images, making prints, which I'm in the middle of uh, printing for my annual summer exhibit here in my studio every August, and uh, getting ready for the print workshops here in July. But starting in June, this is the first international workshop of 2015, going to Scotland, visiting uh, big stone alignments in Orkney and Kalanish. And then any up on sky. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. And then in September, we're going to Greenland and Iceland. And November, we're going to Japan. And all of those workshops are full. So we're now planning our uh, 2016 workshops. Seth Resnick and I go out and do these fabulous adventures in these fabulous places together. And we're, we're just having a blast. And so are the people who are joining us. That just sounds fantastic. And you guys are very successful about attracting people to your workshops. Why do you think? What's special about them? We offer a lot. It's not just a photo tour. It's a workshop. And so we take a very personal approach and we encourage people to develop their own voice. We ask the question, what's your story? And you can ask it with all kinds of intonations, but the real idea is to try and get people to make images that reflect their authentic experience in their own unique ways, not make pictures like us or like Ansel Adams, but to try and find their voice. And that's extremely stimulating. And that we have seen so much growth in our students and that they come back time and time again. We usually have good 30 to 40% repeat customers in each of those. So they're coming back and spending a lot of time with us and, and developing. And obviously, we, we are offering a lot. But what that also does is that there's this instant little community from, from day one, from, from the get-go, of people who have a shared experience and, and many of them know each other. And, and so it becomes a very friendly, personal, intimate kind of experience. So it's, it's, it's really super. That's a terrific way to learn. Does it require a certain level of skill in photography to show up and get started? Basic skills. I think really it requires a point of view and an, an open mind, a willingness to try new things. And uh, those are the kinds of things that are really going to help you develop. I mean, we can uh, tell people all the ins and outs of Photoshop, but uh, that's not really going to help them develop their personal voice. It's simply going to give them the skills should they find that. I remember one of my favorite uh, quotes by Jerry Olsman, one of the funnier men in photography. It's just because you memorize the dictionary doesn't mean you have anything to say. And, and, and so we can pursue craft, but I think it's really important to put that craft in the service of, of people, of a vision, of, of saying something. So. I think so, too. It, it is what you do with it. Um, but, you know, I also think that there is importance to understanding the, the basics of the craft. If you get really good at something to the point where you don't have to think about the craft part, then I think your voice can be stronger. At least that works for me. That's absolutely part of it. And also because photography has changed so much in the last, what, 25 years? It's not just Photoshop's fault, but in large part. Um, we're starting to see differently as a result. We're making time-lapse images. We're taking photographs at 11 o'clock at night, long after the sun went down. And we're seeing a Milky Way that we can't see with our naked eyes. We're doing panoramic stitches or focus stacking to increase depth of field. doesn't mean we're making surreal composites. I mean, I do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that to everybody. But the way that you use the camera, what you do to your image afterwards, the way that you pre-visualize and think about what you're going to do with your image and how you make them is vastly expanded. And, uh, you know, I think we have to also have to kind of make a nod to the uh, 
the smartphone in there as well, because uh, we're living in a day and age where more photographs are taken with the iPhone in one year than all previous years in the history of photography. Right. So we're trying to c- catch up with all of that. I, I actually love what all of this does to my mind because it, it asks me to think more flexibly, to see in many more ways, and, and that's the real voyage of discovery. It really is. And one of the things that has changed from when you and I started with photography is printing. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what do you find really interesting about printing? So interesting that you devote separate workshops to the skill of printing. Um, let's first note how strange it is to be talking about an era when not everybody makes prints or has prints made of their images. 25 years ago, I keep using that number because, you know, Photoshop was born 25 years ago. Uh, you had to make a print just to see your images. Remember contact sheets, you know, looking at all the different images, right? You know, now we're looking at thumbnails. And, and I'm not saying I prefer the contact sheet. I love the thumbnails. I love collections in Lightroom. But once you've identified the hero images and you decide to spend a good deal of time with a single image, you start looking at those images with a great deal more care and consideration. Details that uh, are very significant in terms of developing your own voice and understanding what you want to do with images and, and what it takes to really get them beyond, the, beyond that 80% into the 90 95%. Really pursue excellence. Uh, a lot of things come to light when you try and make a print. And part of what comes to light is your voice and your relationship to your images. All the decisions you make along the way in actually making something physical. And, and, and making something physical, something to hold, actually changes the way that you relate uh, with the way other people relate to your images. And, you know, a lot of people talk about considering the, the beautiful fine art print and what an experience it is and is. It adds something sensual. It adds a physical scale. It fixes something. I mean, how many times have you looked at an image on screen for five minutes? You look at them in milliseconds, a couple of seconds at best, and then you flip through to the next one. You know what I'm saying? Somehow we all need to find ways to get our images out of our hard drives and into our environment. Um, I also absolutely love being able to do something like this. And, and, And to me, there's something wonderful about feeling this thing. And, and we look at texture. I mean, you look at a silk blouse or you look at a cotton blouse and it, feels differently, even though you never touch it, right? Um, I also think this is one of the more surreal experiences in the world. I always used to think that, you know, traditional photography was somewhat surreal, that here I am looking at this great Ansel Adams photograph, and there's Yosemite. In this case, here's uh, the Lemaire Channel in Antarctica, and, and I'm holding it. Isn't that surreal? I mean, not only to be able to take a piece back, but that thousand-foot peak is right here in between my hands. This thing called a print it's a very interesting experience. It offers a, a whole, it does interesting things to your head, just like Photoshop does interesting things to your head. It really does. And I, I miss that. And um, the few prints that we have around the house, uh, you know, I love them. They're very special. They're, they're personal in a way that the f- many thousands of photographs that I have on the computer aren't yet the ones that I haven't printed. So right. uh, one question I have I is seen them in the future. Yeah, and in many right. ways, you're printing your legacy. And a lot of people will say, your house is burning. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to grab that box of, of family photos back from who knows how long ago. I mean, I've, I've got a choice now because I've got the old fam- some of the old family photos, but then I've also got all my hard drives, which have all my new family photos. So I may be going for my hard drive these days. You know? But still, it, it highlights the importance of those things that are made. And, and so if I hand my hard drives on to my son and he hands them on to his Grandkid, my grandkids, uh, what are they going to do with those hard drives? Uh, these are brand new challenges. I'm, I'm sure we can overcome them in time. But actually making something is making a lot of decisions. Just, just the choice to make a photograph of this thing at this time in this way, that, that's a huge statement. You're saying it's important enough to stop and, and take notice of something, really acknowledge it. And then out of all the thousands, hundreds of thousands of moments that you've stopped, you've decided just a few of these hero images are, are worth the time to make a print. And that's like, really pay attention. And so there, there's a kind of a care. And, and when you do that for somebody else, it just 
it adds an entirely different dimension. If I make a picture of you or I make a picture of um, somebody that's important to me, there's, there's, there's a, an exchange there as well. If I give you a print or somebody buys one of my prints, there, there's another kind of exchange there as well. Um, there's a social dimension to looking at prints. I mean, when do you look at prints casually? Do you look at prints by flipping through on your iPhone? You go to a gallery, maybe you look in a portfolio box, uh, but actually looking at prints is an event. And I used to not really think that because I was so used to all of those events. But the more I look at it, I say, well, how many times do you actually look at prints in your environment? And how many times do you look at the same prints? It, actually, I think that's one of the great things about prints is that over time, your observations, your impressions, experiences with a single image build up. And it's not only the very careful, considered uh, looking, it's, it's also just the kind of stuff that catches you out of the side of your eyes when you're having coffee. I, I, I know that one of the things I enjoy most about my annual summer show is that I get to live with that work, well presented, well hung, in good light, for many months to come before it goes out on the road to another exhibit. And by spending time with it, it gets into me in a different way. If it's just hidden on the hard drive, I would kind of remember it. But having those extra experiences to be able to share conversations with other people about that, it all builds into a richer experience. So I really Every, recommend people make prints. Everything you say is so true. And, you know, it's not something I've heard a lot of people talk about before. So I see maybe a book in the works about this. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been writing a book on this for more than a decade. This is actually my 20th year of teaching digital printing workshops. Um, we did the Epson Print Academy. There are DVDs up on my website and all kinds of resources kind of rushes. But, yeah, I think the, the book is, 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 is coming. That's great. I think it's a good idea. Now, one of the one of the things that I think stops people from printing is that they think they need all kinds of expensive equipment. Is that true? And if so, what do they need? No. If you've got your computer and Photoshop, all the rest of that, you you need a basic printer, which would cost as little as six hundred dollars. Though I would probably recommend something slightly over a thousand. These new seventeen-inch printers whether it's the 3880 from Epson or the one that's just coming out, the uh, P800, uh, you're going to get started for less than $1,500, and I'm, I'm overshooting it. You're going to get it for $1,300 or less. You're going to be able to make a 17-inch wide print by, you know, 1722 is the sheet size, but you can go long panoramic. And you're going to be able to make prints that have blacker blacks and silver gelatin that have more saturated color than any other color print material, save maybe the early color carbon prints that has longevity that exceeds traditional color printing by a factor of minimum three. And again, I'm being extremely conservative. Let's get a little more specific. Color prints that last 200 years. And when I say last, that's before a 0.2 density shift in the yellow layer. In other words, if you look at two images side by side and you look carefully, you say, oh, yeah, this one's a little bluer. We're not talking about it disappeared on the, on the page. So... Is important in terms of making a fine art collectible object for a museum or in terms of making a family heirloom that is going to be passed on for generations. And, you know, for a little more than $1,000, you're able to print on matte surfaces, glossy surfaces, plastic, metal, you name it. If it's up to 1.5 millimeters thick or, or thinner, you can print on it as long as you get the ink to stick on it. I mean, it's, it's pretty fabulous. Try doing that in the analog darkroom. It Try is getting your analog darkroom ready at 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, I can't sleep, so let me make a print. Let me just turn it on and fire off a print. You never used to do that. Dad plays Rachmaninoff and Chopin in the middle of the night. He doesn't want to mix chemistry. No, so we've got it good. It's, it's, it's really pretty great. Well, it sounds like you're a convert because I know you started out doing uh, darkroom printing. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, you know, dad laid my foundations, my mother and my father, and it's it's been around ever since before I could talk. So there's always been a darkroom. There have always been prints. There have also been paintings and other things as well, books, the rest of it. But um, I think one of the funny things is the way we started out this conversation, we're having conversations about what prints actually do. Part of it is that we're so accustomed to having these things in our environment or seeing them in other places that that some of this just remains unconscious, subconscious, uh, not considered as much. And now that things are changing, 
I love the fact that we're reconsidering them and having to make clearer statements about what's actually going on. That's it's an exciting time. It is, but there are some new things to learn. Um, so if you're not used to printing, what are some of the challenges, some of the things that people find, uh, you know, that they can't just hit the button, that they need to know about? <laughs> um, we're dancing around saying the dreaded words, color management. I usually say them with a stutter. Color management. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. You know, it's rocket science, but rocket scientists don't fly the rockets. Astronauts do or pilots do. And things have gotten so much better in the last 20 years. I have to say 20, not 25, because when Photoshop was first introduced, color management didn't exist. Right? But it's gotten so much better that we have some unreasonable expectations. The idea that we can simply hit print and out will come the first finished perfect print. Well, let's just say I rarely see it. It actually does happen, and it absolutely amazes me because in the traditional darkroom, we used to do those test strips. You know, where do you actually get maximum black and quick rush before the chemistry gets cold or tired or, like, those conditions will only stay stable for so long? But we have this notion we just hit Command-P, and out comes this perfect print if we've only done our color management correctly. A um, little bit unrealistic, but uh, it actually does happen. Uh, I'm going to be generous 20% of the time. And I'm, I'm saying this with respect to fine art prints. If we were just talking about little four by sixes that you were going to put in a family album and it didn't have to be perfect, then yeah, first time out, it's going to look pretty good. But if you really want to dial it in and get it right, generally you have to take a, a little extra care. And that's actually part of color management. A lot of people are unaware of soft proofing, what it is, how to do it. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's well worth doing. And then many people feel like they're doing something wrong if they're actually proofing. Uh, well, I didn't get my color management quite right. When in fact, there are a number of little imperfections in the system that add up to uh, some significant differences from the monitor to the print. Now remember, when we make a print, we actually want our images to look a little different than the monitor. We don't want it to be a little 15-inch glossy piece of plastic or glass. Maybe want a 30 by 40 piece of fiber or paper, right? So I have to acknowledge that we don't want it to look exactly like what we see on the monitor. We're looking for other things. Otherwise, you might as well just put the monitor on the wall. Um, and that's starting. That's, you know, we, we used to say that's coming. No, that's here too, right? <laughs> in fact, a lot of times my monitor's in my pocket. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> many, many times. Well, you know, we just came back uh, from travels and um, my son came back as well. And so we went over to his house and nobody said, let's do a slideshow or let's uh, show our prints. We just took out our phones. Um, he did some magic with AirPlay and up there on the 60 inch monitor were all our photos and videos for us to enjoy. And then we went home and, you know, slept off the jet lag. But it was yeah. so informal and really a wonderful way to see those sorts of photos. Right. And, and if that leads to an increased sense of spontaneity, if it happens more frequently, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, but at the same time, I think we're all running so fast that there are times where we want to slow down and really consider things. And I think in many ways a print or an exhibit of prints is, is an opportunity to do just that to just slow down and really consider things. I agree. And you were mentioning soft proofing as a way to, um, to try to deal with some of the color issues in your prints. Would you mind sharing your screen and showing us a little bit about soft proofing? I assume you're going to do this in Photoshop. Is that right? I'm going to do it in Photoshop. Yeah, you can do it in, in Lightroom, but we'll talk that through as well. But uh, let me share my screen and we can talk about soft proofing. Uh, there, there are a number of resources on my website. Before you think that you have to take incredible copious notes, uh, let me show you a couple of the resources that I'm going to be referring to uh, up on my website. But the challenge with getting to my website is remembering how to spell my name. Once you've got that, uh, you're good to go. A lot of the things I'm going to be doing right now are a distillation of three of the DVDs that are up on my website, Fine Art Digital Printing, uh, Six Simple Steps to Good Color Management, and The Art of Proofing. There are a lot of free resources under my lessons, under technique. You'll see that if you go down, you'll see all of these free resources on color management, which includes some video demonstrations. So there's great review here, both about the big concept 
in PDF form and actual demonstrations by the folks at X-Rite. Uh, there are also a whole number of resources on printing. See, each one of these little drop-down menus has all kinds of resources. If you ever see something that's free to members, the way that you get the free to members is you sign up for my newsletter here. Just go to Get News or click on the blog sidebar, and you can get there. You enter in your address, and you'll get a username and a password to access that information. And I recommend people do that. I do that, and it's a great resource. And I want to make sure that people know um, the URL of your website if they're not watching for our, our audio listeners. Could you say it for them? It's www.johnpaulcaponegro.com. That's C-A-P-O-N-I-G-R-O. So, again, I said I, I teach these. The print workshops are coming up in July. I do that pretty much every year. And generally in December, there's a black and white workshop. And it's interesting. If you look at my blog, there's a, that kind of become the epicenter of the website. Uh, I remember years ago thinking that I didn't want to do a blog because I didn't have that much to say. Um, boy, was I wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, nature pours a vacuum, you get a bucket, you fill it. But on there today, it's actually kind of ironic. Uh, one of my alumni who's taken both of those print workshops wrote a post about his new print portfolio from the Greenland and Iceland trips that he's been on with us and, and, and all the benefits that he's seen and uh, some of the tips, some of the things he learned along the way. Uh, so you can find all kinds of things, including great quotes and photographs from terrific photographers to creativity videos. And I posted something by Neil deGrasse Tyson last week, uh, my books, eBooks, you name it. There's, there's a lot of information in there. Part of the reason for the newsletter is to let people know what's new in this really information rich resource. I remember years ago, one of my alumni saying, you know, the print is high resolution, low density. The web is low resolution, high density. And I understand what he's saying, given some of the great websites that are out there. So self-roofing is part of color management. And many, many people think about color management as let's match the screen to the print. And yes, that's a reasonable objective, but you have to recognize first as best as possible. A lot of the manufacturers out there want to say what you see is what you get. We see wig for $99 and it's a promise they can't keep. I don't know how you simplify. We're going to get you as close as physically possible. Now, maybe there's another acronym for that. But you have to understand that when you print, things change. And we'll talk more about that. I mean, the primary thing that changes is you're looking at a monitor that's emitting light, an emissive color space, and you're looking at a piece of paper that's absorbing light, a, trans, uh, a reflective color space. And you're going from a contrast ratio of about 1,001 on the monitor to, at best, and I'm being generous, 101 contrast ratio on the print. So the, the dynamic range compression, just like when you click the shutter in the camera, is huge. And, and you're going to have to understand that some things are going to change. But you can manage that change very well. And I think that's part of what color management is, managing the change in colors very precisely, uh, as accurate as possible. And then also giving you tools to control how it changes. So let's talk really quickly about those six simple steps to good color management. Number of things, one, make profile conversions. That is, when you export a TIFF or a JPEG, assign a profile. You're going to be doing that in your preferences up in camera raw. You, you can't export a file without a uh, profile. I recommend Profoto because it's the only color space that can contain all the rich color that your camera can capture. If you go for another space like Adobe or sRGB, you may lose some of that rich, saturated color. And the idea in making a master file would be to preserve all of the information that the camera captured. Profoto will do that. Uh, when you export from Lightroom, that's where the profile comes in. Otherwise, in Lightroom, everything is done in a version of Profoto. Two, calibrate your monitor. If you don't have a well-calibrated monitor, you're going to be looking at a distorted view of your image on the screen, and you need to do this with hardware. Hardware is in a stable state. You are not. Uh, we drink caffeine. We eat sugar. Our emotion affects our perception of color. We get tired. We adapt to the context. There's so many reasons why you need something that is consistent. And so much of color management is about making color consistent and predictable. Then once you do make it consistent and predictable, you can feel confident that all of the subjective and emotional decisions that you've made about how you want your image to look can be reproduced faithfully. Uh, get a colorimeter. So three, set good Photoshop color settings. 
just basically turn all the dialog boxes on in Photoshop that anytime a color management operation happens, you get an alert and you have a choice as to how to handle it. Uh, but I would minimize the number of conversions as much as possible. One of the ways to do that is if you've converted your files into ProPhoto, then set your default color space in your Photoshop color settings to ProPhoto. And then you won't see all those dialog boxes. If you adopted a single streamlined workflow, you'd just be opening up files, you'd be making new files, and everything would be in ProPhoto. Four, soft proof. I'm going to detail that. But basically, it's make your monitor look like your print. Now, a lot of people, again, think that calibrating your monitor was supposed to do that. But in fact, calibrating your monitor shows you the best possible view of your image on a monitor. It doesn't show you what your image will look like on different papers. Even if you have the same printer, like an Epson 3880 or an Epson 9900, and you print to a glossy paper like a luster or exhibition fiber, and then you turn around and you print to a watercolor paper or some of these fine art matte papers, the image will look different because the papers are different. One can print a much more saturated black. One has a much more uh, saturated pastel highlights. The matte paper has great saturated pastel highlights. The the glossies tend to have much blacker blacks and so more saturated shadows. So the whole notion of soft proofing is before you spend the money on ink and paper to check out what an ICC profile is going to do to your image and how that image will change. And it also gives you the opportunity to tweak it a little so that you get the best first print. Because again, some things are going to change. Some of that is necessary. You're just going to have to accept a, a lower contrast um, let's say, contrast range or dynamic range. But some of the mid-tone contrast uh, might seem a little bit flat, and you can just simply tweak mid-tone contrast with a little curve and get a more luminous print. So soft proofing helps you decide what to do for a specific output condition. Could I, could I go back just a little bit on that one? Yeah. There may be people who don't know what soft proofing means as opposed to proofing. Well, like I said, soft proofing is getting your monitor to simulate what your print will look like, not to give you the most accurate display of your image, but to preview and predict what's going to happen when you go out to a certain printer with a certain ink set using a certain profile. It's that whole combination. And it'll tell you what's going to happen to your image when you choose a paper. Does that make more sense? Yeah. So it's what happens before you print as opposed to printing out a proof print, and then going back and trying to tweak the result. Right. And the goal is to get the best first proof possible. Um, some people are so confident in soft proofing that they're willing to uh, run 10,000 copies of a book on an offset press without any physical proofs. <laughs> I couldn't believe that they did that when they ran the second edition of my book. Um, but in the old days, you used to actually have to get physical hard copy to make sure the color was going to stay consistent and be accurately reproduced. I, I think it's also useful to actually make a proof and we'll come back to, to some of the reasons to do that. So anyways, soft proofing will cut your ink and paper costs, will help improve the quality of the prints because you can then compensate. And I'm going to show you a couple of things to watch for. It's important to navigate the uh, printer driver correctly, whether you're using Epson or Canon or HP they all have their different color management routes. You can get Photoshop to manage the color or Lightroom before it delivers it to the print driver. Or you can get the print driver to manage the color. One of the reasons you might want to use a print driver is they all have uh, advanced black and white solutions that give you a blacker black and a more stable print. And in that case, you would want to use the printer's color management rather than Photoshop's. But for most other applications color applications, you would want to use Photoshop or Lightroom managing the color. And you have to check all the buttons right, because in the old days, it was it was a lot easier to check both printer and Photoshop and come up with a magenta print, or turn it all off and come up with a green print. Um, so you need to Great. set up your driver correctly and just check the right buttons. Great summary of, um, and, and really simplifying, uh, a complicated subject of color management that, unfortunately, we can't look at in more depth today. And I was really trying to keep my mouth shut as you were going through <laughs> that, because like many of our audience, I had a million questions I wanted to ask you. Maybe some other time you'll come back and talk about that. But now, I, I hope you're going to get into more on soft proofing. I am. I can easily do that. But remember, Jan, all of those PDFs that I showed you, 
Every single one of these and more is detailed in a PDF. It'll give you step-by-steps. It'll give you visual examples. You can follow up on all of this. So I'm, I'm giving you the big scope of this. Um, the final bit on color management, control your environment. So light is important at the point of capture, of course. It's also important when you view the print. You can't view prints in the dark. And if you view prints in poor lighting, then the images aren't going to look great. So I recommend a full-spectrum bulb with enough light and the right color temperature. Now, there's a little bit of um, debate in the industry as about what the perfect light temperature is. Basically, I would figure out where you plan to have your image viewed and print for that viewing light. In other words, some light is warmer and some light is cooler. Most people prefer a slightly warmer light, say 3630, something like that. So in a nutshell, if I print something like this, uh, I want to highlight something. This is basically what's happening to my image. This is what they call a chromaticity diagram. This is a graph of that actual image inside all of that. And if you look on the outside, there's Profoto coming into the smaller one, this red shape would be what your camera would be capable of. The next shape inside that would be Adobe. Many smart monitors are more than 99% of Adobe. So they're very close to Adobe. And then this unusual shape in here is the printer profile. And if you look at it, it says, holy smoke, on these new printers and ink sets, we can actually reproduce yellows and some oranges that are more saturated than this on the monitor. That's an interesting challenge that's uh, only recently come around with the new ink sets, some of these warmer blues as well. And of course, if you look at this, you would think, well, everything on this image is totally, quote, in gamut or printable. But if you look at this in three dimensions, remember color is always in three dimensions, you'll see some areas, these oranges and these purples are actually outside the volume of the ICC profile that describes the color capacity of a particular paper. This happens to be the Epson 9900 on uh, ultra smooth fine art. So what looked totally printable in two dimensions, it actually shows you some of the sleepers, uh, some challenges. And that means some of these orange and coral highlights need to be printed a little less saturated than what you see on the monitor. That's the thing that uh, people have to realize. You just have to accept that. The only way to fix that is to go get a better ink set or a better paper. And many of us are waiting for the next ink set or the next paper. It's one of the things that's going to happen when the new Epson uh, ink set comes uh, onto the market this summer when we're getting black or black. And possibly this saturated purple will come back into gamut because everything will be a lot more uh, printable. So, yeah. can, I, can I ask you which ink set you normally use in the Epson printer? I'm using the, uh, the, the, well, I was going to say the most current, and it's not uh, because things have just been released or about to be released. The Epson Ultrachrome HDR ink set. It's, uh, in addition to CMYK, a couple of extra blacks, uh, light cyan, light magenta. It also has a green and an orange, which in offset terminology would be considered hi-fi printing. In other words, it's expanding the saturation of those colors and that's exactly why they're getting those really fabulous yellows and oranges and some of those those blues more colored ink to get you more saturated color Thanks. so let's talk a little bit about soft proofing i think we've already done it it's, it's again to simulate what your image will look like when printed again your image going to different papers will look differently what you're seeing on the calibrated monitor is an ideal representation of your image as best the monitor can can display it but it's not showing you what your image will look like, say, on a watercolor paper or a Japanese washi paper. And soft proofing will use the profile you're going to print with to simulate that. So we've talked a little bit in gamut, out of gamut. It's going to render the out of gamut colors into gamut, printable. And it's going to try and keep the relative relationships between the stuff that was printable and the stuff that was unprintable somewhat stable. And in that case, you may be making some sacrifices you may not need to make. Um, there's two rendering intents, and I'll show you. Actually, there's four rendering intents. Forget about saturation. It's for pie charts. It makes colors really bright and fancy, but it's not going to make a great photograph. Uh, and uh, absolute color metric is for making a proof, say, for an offset press. It's not the best way to get the best inkjet print on that particular printer. So you're down to two. Out of four, just focus on the two. And realize relative tends to favor the tonal structure. Black and white photographers will tend to use that more. 
uh, perceptual would be used for those very saturated colors when you really want to keep saturation as high as possible. But it often has a few side effects, like it'll tend to lighten the image, and sometimes it'll slightly distort a hue in order to keep the saturation high. And there's no perfect rendering attempt. I'm going to show you that uh, it totally depends on the image. This is one of the reasons you want a soft root, is to choose the rendering intent. And I'll show you. It can make the difference between a warm blue and a green blue. And you really won't know which rendering intent to use until you soft proof. Um, and in addition, it'll also show you that dynamic range compression. And while it will make the image on screen look duller, we can then, working within the paper white and the ink black, make the midtones a little contrast here. We can start to adjust the image before printing it. So let me show you how to do it. I'm going to open up this image in Photoshop. And, and remember, you can do this in Lightroom. And in fact, one of the things, the more recent versions, not the latest version, but a few versions back, they really got it right because they listened to the idea of, of needing to see things side by side, which is important. So I'm going to come in here and duplicate this image. Now, the only reason I'm duplicating it is so that I get a before and after preview. The soft proof is going to change the way the image looks on screen. So what I want on this copy is just a, what did it look like before? Otherwise, I'm going to forget. I guarantee you, you will forget. You'll miss little subtleties. But when you see things side by side, you can quickly make comparisons. The before is on the right. I'm not going to do anything to this. I'm just going to close it after I'm finished. And the after is what we're going to do when we get into the soft proof. Lightroom actually shows these two side by side, and it's a great interface there. It even has a kind of lights out and grays down the whites, which is, is super. But it doesn't have the ability to make uh, as precise output specific adjustments, which is why currently I do all of my soft proofing in Photoshop. And then once I've got something proofed and ready to print, I'll ingest that file into a Lightroom database for printing so I can use all the great output sharpening and print 24 images at the same time or quickly change the print size. I mean, Lightroom is fantastic for all of that. It just needs, it still just needs a little tweaking on the, on the proofing end of things. And I, I can't wait for the day when that happens. So to get I, have, to I have to ask you, because, you know, I'm a Lightroom aficionado. What is it that is not in Lightroom that it needs regarding soft proofing? So let's say that I need to make some adjustments to my image uh, during the soft proofing, uh, the ability to adjust those areas um, is not as precise. I, I can't bend a curve for the output specific uh, adjustment. I can't localize that curve to the shadows only. Um, and I'll show you a couple of other examples there. But th those two are, are really critical. And I'm going to show you one way to get 100 proofs in one with a gradient. And I can't create the gradient for an output-specific solution and then get back to a certain percentage. Once I show you two things here in just a second, then um, it'll, it'll become a little clearer why proofing is so much more precise in Photoshop. It's pretty good in Lightroom, but if you really want to dial it in, I, I still find Photoshop is superior. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So remember, we're not changing the file, so we're not going to edit, we're not going to image adjust, we're actually going to view. So all we're changing when we're soft proofing is the way the file is being displayed. And when you go to proof setup, it'll often default to working CMYK, which is an offset press. In this case, you want to go to custom and choose the profile that you're going to print with. I'm going to come and choose, uh, say, premium luster. Oh, and by the way, do you see Photoshop? You always suffer from profile-itis. Way too many profiles, often from printers you've never heard of or seen or will never use. Lightroom is awesome that way because it's got profile filtering. You just select the ones you're going to use, and those are the ones, only ones you see. You load up a new one when you want it. So I'm going to check a premium luster here, and you can see, as I check it, the image on screen changes. It's gotten less contrasty. First, let's take a look at the rendering tent. So I said perceptual, and I said relative colorimetric are the two things to look at. So look at the blue on the left now. Under perceptual, it looks a little green. And when I look at relative color metric, it looks warmer, closer to the match on the right. Let's go back again. Perceptual, one, two, three, go. It's a subtle change, but that blue is coming in quite a bit greener. If I were going to use a perceptual, then I would need to go ahead and adjust just the blues because it didn't seem to affect the pinks, probably because these colors are slightly out of gamut. And it's trying to keep the saturation up high and is willing to make that blue a little bit greener in an attempt to make a more saturated color. What I'm really looking for is the match on the right. Remember, this is my before. 
So all I need to do is check this out and say, yep, relative color metric is the one for me. Again, there is no perfect rendering intent for all images. And I think one of the things about soft proofing that's really important is to check this and choose the right rendering intent. Or you may come up with color distortions or your image might come in a little lighter. There might be a few side effects. So just check it out and see which one works. The other uh, part of soft proofing is here. And um, this is one that is not quite as precise as we would like it to be. But let's talk about what it's trying to do first. Simulate paper color. What that's doing is it's trying to take the very bright white of the monitor and simulate the duller white of the print. And similarly, it's also trying to lighten up the blacks to simulate just how dark ink on paper is, not the really black black that you see on your monitor. So a lot of people would say this is my look, make my image look terrible. I'm, I'm censoring because many people use uh, other stronger words. Um, but this is kind of the the sad fact that your dynamic range is going to compress. But here's the thing. This feature in soft proofing, which hasn't been updated since version 5, by the way, I don't mean CS5, I mean 5, the day they introduced color management. This has always been a little aggressive, and it's dependent on the profile. And I think it's really important to have an average test print that you print out with a particular profile and you look at that print under good light and you check this on and off and say, how does this particular profile, how well does that work for the viewing condition that I'm trying to simulate? Because often this is too aggressive. And if you find that it's too aggressive, I recommend you just turn it off. And for our audio viewers, uh, when he's just to reiterate, he, when he says this, he's talking about the checkbox in the proof dialogue, simulate paper color. Right. And sometimes you can check the simulate black ink just under separately, depends on the way the profile is built. So you can simulate the white separately from the black. In this case, for this profile, we can only simulate the two of them at the same time. So let's assume that we could do something uh, so that, that, that it did simulate things well. Um, one of the things that it's absolutely classic you would do is now make a curve or any other tool that will get you contrast, but curves really gives you uh, the best control over light and dark of, of any tool in the entire tool set. And notice I'm just scrubbing here, building in a little bit of contrast into the midtones. Notice I'm not moving my white point, trying to get a whiter white. You can't get whiter than paper white. I'm not moving my black point. I'm not trying to uh, get a black or black picking ink on paper because I can't. Uh, soft proofing is saying, look, things are limited. You have to work within that range. But you can see that in this before and after, I can add a little bit more snap little mid-tone contrast with that curves to restore some of the luminance that's been lost while it's being soft-proofed. So this is an output-specific adjustment, and it's important to note that. I very often go down into the layers palette or up in the menu and go to the new group from layers and title that. In this case, I'm simulating a 3880 on luster with relative color metric. Just title it and say, look, this adjustment, this curves, is really only built for that profile. You only want to use this adjustment when you print to that paper. If you print to another paper, you want to turn this off and create a different adjustment for a different paper. But every time that you do print to that luster paper, to the same condition, you could use this same adjustment. And that little extra snap will really give a, a great deal of life back to your print. Um, so are you suggesting you could use the same curve with different photographs or just with the same photograph for different uh, events of printing that photograph? Theoretically, you could use it for many images, but you would have to really make a very precise adjustment that could hold for all images. And it would take the right test print and a lot of really objective looking. To, to come up with that. So I, I would recommend that you do it image by image or you do a lot of that testing and, and see if you can do that. More than likely though, Jan, if you, if you don't overdo it, just this little extra goose in midtone contrast would probably improve just about every single image. And another way of doing this, I think some of you may have heard about a technique called high pass contrast or midtone contrast. Mac likes to, Mac Holbert likes to call it that and a number of other people have picked up on that. It's basically a way of filtering the image in a way that adds contrast into the midtones. It looks a bit like clarity. And it, in fact, it is early clarity in Photoshop. And 
People like Mac Holbert and Vincent Versace say they use it on 100% of images that they print. The main thing is whether you use a curve or high pass to target those midtones and add a little bit of extra contrast to compensate for your whites getting duller and your blacks getting lighter. In other words, you're losing contrast overall. And this little tweak is a huge help. I'm going to show you one other thing that can be helpful and show you another piece in this color management puzzle. It doesn't quite work. Sound good to you, Jan? Yes. I, we have about 10 minutes left. Perfect. Okay. So I'm going to move over and start talking about proofing. Um, in just a second, we'll, 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 we'll show you this one real quick. I want to show you one thing that just doesn't work in Photoshop or in Lightroom. And that's the out of gamut warning. Um, let me, let me, instead of telling you, just show you and, and you'll see. So, so we graph this image. I showed you an, a, a version of this image, uh, graphed and you saw the little pieces of, of color in the corals and the orange highlights that didn't fit into the volume of the ICC profile. You saw the purples that also didn't fit. Both of those are going to need to be printed duller than what you see on the monitor here. Um, under view, there's something called the gamut warning. And it was designed to show you uh, what's too saturated to print. And in some cases, uh, what's too too dark or too black. In other words, if the, the black on the screen is too black. The idea was you're supposed to see gray over the areas that aren't printed. But if, I just don't see any gray here. Do you, Jan? I just, no. I'm not seeing anything. Okay, so what if I come in and I saturate this? How saturated do I need to get? for that gamut warning to show there it is okay but this is far more saturated than i wanted and i do know that those areas that are coming up quickly are actually out of gamut look we, we have to go this far to start to see the purples come in line um this gamut warning is just inaccurate it kind of sort of works for cmyk like an offset press um but you know what i think about kind of sort of I'd, I'd rather get it right uh, so I completely recommend that you do. I, I strongly recommend that you just take this feature in Photoshop, the uh, gamut warning, just send it to Jersey. Just forget about it. Just <laughs> don't use it. There, there, is, it <laughs> is it on by default or you have to turn it on? No, you have to turn it on. And okay. so if you hear some recommendations that what you should do is make a select by color range if you're out of gamut colors and desaturate them, just forget about that. That's just... A, the rendering intent will handle it. B, the gamut warning doesn't work. Like, just leave it alone. Just one day, we might get a better preview. But right now, it just simply doesn't work. But it does bring up a really interesting aspect of soft proofing. Uh, when I come to the proof setup, and it is important to make sure you've loaded in the right profile because the soft proof and the gamut warning will be tied to the profile you're using. Stands to reason. You're going to use a glossier paper. You're going to have fewer issues on your saturation in your blacks, that kind of thing. Uh, you'll notice that in the top of the bar, the menu says the file title, then it says slash the profile that it's using to soft proof. And the soft proof will constrain the saturation to what's printable so that as I push this beyond any sense of reality here, distorting everything, you'll notice that the top of the image, the oranges, they're not moving at all because they're out of gamut. So what's really interesting is you can use this by just yanking the saturation slider really wildly and seeing what doesn't shift. You can use the soft proof to say, you know, no matter what I do, I can't saturate those oranges anymore, so don't try. But look what's happening to all the other values in the file. And if I turn this to zero, you can see as I hit Command-Y, which will toggle it on and off, a lot of the other colors are getting grayer. And that's partly to, well, that's because they're trying to preserve the relationship, the really saturated unprintable to what's already printable. And the stuff that is printable is getting desaturated a little. And you don't have to accept that side effect, just like you don't have to accept the compression of the midtones from that dynamic range compression. In other words, in this case, we'll boost the saturation a little bit, for the in-gamut colors. We're not going to try and get more saturated oranges, but we can get more saturated purples and greens. 
so that they don't get hit hard by the side effect of the ICC profile. These and you're just doing you're just doing that using the master slider in the hue saturation uh, dialog in the properties panel. Exactly right. It's so simple. One little adjustment layer. Again, I recommend you put this into a group that says what you intend to use it for. A certain printer, luster, or certain uh, paper, or certain rendering intent, so that you only use it for that. But it's no more complicated than once you've turned on the soft proof, then using the hue saturation slider to goose up the colors that got unnecessarily gray. Terrific. The main, main thing about the soft proof is to say, like to win the war, pick your battles. Don't try and make more saturated oranges in this case for this image, because you just can't get there from here. But there's so much else you can do. And there's some side effects you just don't have to accept. And so your layer stack might look something like this. I generally tend to recommend that you start with the curve first, a little bit of curves for the midtones. And I'm just doing this roughly just as an example, a little kick for the curves in the midtones and a little kick on saturation, two little adjustment layers. And it would make an absolutely huge difference to the print quality. You get more snap on the light and dark. You'll get more saturation on the in-gamut colors. It'll just be a lusher, richer, more luminous print, all because you've been soft-proofing. You could get something that looks dull and gray like that, or with just two little adjustment layers, you can get your first print to look even better, like more saturated, more luminous. That's the whole point of soft-proofing. That is so fantastic. And I really appreciate that after you told us all the why and the how, you summarized to show us that really it is just a couple of adjustment layers. And when you understand what they're doing, then you can use them to advantage. You don't have to go and make 10,000 layers and make a complicated file. Exactly right. So like, yeah, there's incredible computing and there's rocket science in the ICC profiles, but you don't have to do any of that. You just have to know how to load them up and make a few visual adjustments to your image to get an even better print. That is fantastic. Now, I have to ask you, is there anything else that you just have to show us? I absolutely have to show you one more thing. Okay. There are small inaccuracies in the color management system. One, most people have their monitors set too bright. The default is 120 lux. You actually should be using more like 100 or 90 for good prediction to print. Um, the other is a lot of the driver, most of the drivers, all the drivers on the printers tend to put a lot of ink down, which gives you these gorgeous midtones, but it often tends to block up the shadows. There's a couple of other things. So all these little tiny things add up to one big thing. And you see, even still, you can go a little further. And let me show you one way to quickly test this. Now, this is like being in the analog darkroom. If my print looks like this, just for instance, and I would like my image to be even more saturated Again, I'm trying to match the monitor. I'm not trying to make decisions about what the image should look like. That's already been done. But let's say that uh, I still feel like it's a little too... Try and get out of je ne sais quoi. It's not specific enough. <laughs> I know it sounds sexy because it's French, but <laughs> you pretty much need to decide. Is it too light or too dark? Is it too warm or too cold? Is it too saturated or not saturated enough? We're basically looking at three elements of color luminosity, hue, and saturation. You can break color down into those three essential elements and really think it through. So let's say I look at the print and I say, you know, it's not saturated enough. Okay, that means now, once I've decided that, I'm going to decide to add some saturation to the image on the monitor. The image on the monitor is going to print too saturated if I do this. So I'm not sure how saturated to get because I've gone as far as I can with color management. I've done, I've even with the soft proofing, these little inaccuracies let go a little further. But how much saturation do I add? My, my recommendation is too much. Notice I'm here in my layers palette, that little adjustment layer, and I'm on the mask here. And what I'm going to do is use a gradient tool to draw a linear gradient across that so that with this mask, I've got no extra saturation here, half of too much, and too much over here. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Somewhere between not enough and too much, it's got to be the right amount. Over on the left, the porridge is going to be too cold. Over on the right, it's going to be too hot. And it's basically test strip, is it? It's a test strip, exactly. What have you been in, the analog darkroom or something? <laughs> That's exactly right. This is exactly where I came up with it. I remember John Sexton years ago when I demonstrated the Epson Print Academy. He said, there's something really deja vu about your presentation today. I felt like I'd been there before. I said, you're there every day. In fact, if you wanted the steps, you could simply posterize this mask. And, and some people like it because they have that experience. I actually find that 
it's a little less precise, but it helps people preview uh, what's actually going on there. And there is your digital test strip. So all I'm doing with this mask here is getting, if there are 100 shades of gray, on this proof, I'm getting 100 proofs with one piece of paper. Now, I don't expect this to be the final print because I'm expecting a gradient. But if I identify where I like the print, if I simply, again, I'm on the mask, if I simply sample the mask, notice I'm picking a coral color there, but I'm getting a gray. It's the gray of the mask. It's the opacity of the layer, essentially. And then I go edit, fill. Just fill it with your foreground color, the gray that you picked. Boom. If you pick the right part in your image on the print that looked right, if you pick the right area, you're going to get you're going to get the perfect result in two proofs. Fantastic. I love that. Boy, I wish I, I wish everybody were watching this. What, what he did, by the way, is he took the, what's it called, the color sampler tool or the eyedropper tool yep. and used the eyedropper tool on the mask on his hue saturation adjustment layer to select one of the grays in the gradient that he'd created on that mask. And then just fill it. And filled with that gray. Perfect. No more gradient, even amount, hopefully the right amount of saturation. And you could do this with multiple things. Maybe your image needed a little bit of contrast and a little saturation. I would recommend that you do those two things separately in two separate proofs because very often one will work and the other won't, and you won't know which one was which. So it's really helpful here to isolate the variables. Again, luminosity, hue, saturation, generally in that order. Um, again, for all those steps, there's a, there's a PDF up on my website. I demo it in uh, my DVD. There's all kinds of information there. But imagine... Not only have we used color management more precisely by using soft proofing than more than 50% of users, but in addition, we're going a little further and applying some analog techniques in, the, in a new digital way to get even more print quality with just a few extra sheets of paper. And I, I have to say that in the old days when color management was first introduced, there was one time where I chased a print and it took me 50 proofs to get the final print it was like being in the traditional darkroom. That number has dwindled so substantially, it's rare for me to have to make more than six proofs to get the final image. And I, I, more often than not, I'm finding three or four pieces of paper, and I've, I've got a gorgeous print. And I'm still absolutely flabbergasted that this stuff works so well that there are times where the first piece of paper out of the printer is as good as I want it. It's like as perfect as I can make it at that moment. So... It really pays to spend a little bit of time to get this stuff right. And once you make this a habit, those six simple steps are so easy to take. You, you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, I recommend you calibrate your monitor once a month, not every day, not every time you print. Uh, most of that stuff stays stable until something in your system changes. And part of color management is knowing which pieces are in play and uh, to be aware when something changes. This stuff is is fantastic. And it is. It's so useful. And I mean, really, I'm going to try this right away. And I also want to make sure that people know what DVD you're talking about, because at least I am going to purchase that for John for his next uh, occasion, because I know he's a, he's a printer more than I am, and he will love it. Gotcha. So where, where is that DVD? Can you show that us? DVD is up on my website, and it's called The Art of Proofing, and it talks about why I think it's important to have proofs. Um, and in fact, I would recommend that if... Uh, if you're selling fine art prints, you're going to go back and, or you're going to go back and reprint uh, an image multiple times over time. Save a copy, save a proof of your best print from before, so that uh, you know if you happen to be tired or have a different opinion that day or couldn't quite find perspective, you've you've got a gorgeous piece of paper to try and match. But it doesn't mean you absolutely have to match that. It could be a new ink set or new paper. You could do even better than that. So my proofs are like a high watermark. It's like I will accept that quality or something better. I won't accept less. And I think as a result, you, if, if you adopt those kinds of practices, you're going to, you're going to get higher quality results faster and, you, and you're just constantly going to become, become a better printer. You're going to continue to make better and better prints. I think so too. Oh, wow. Fantastic. You know, and it's so generous of you to share this with other people because it is difficult. And I think a lot of people just operate on that, um, you know, that trial and error basis with every print, and that can be frustrating. So to have some systems in place, some things you can try to get what's, what matches your vision is really important. It's not only frustrating, it's expensive. 
Yeah. Ink and paper aren't exactly cheap. And if you can get 100 proofs in one, you're going to save a lot of ink and paper, which is great. I think the most important thing, though, is time. I mean, with all of us living more complicated, busy lives, the time saving is probably more important than anything else. And, And part of that is also reducing the fatigue and enjoying the process more. I think people these days are chasing their images further because it's not such hard work. They're going further and making better images because they're considering subtleties in their images that in the past people got tired or chemistry tired out or, you know, we're making fewer excuses. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, again, I want to thank you, John Paul Caponegro, for being my guest today. It's been just a fantastic experience um, to learn from you, and I really appreciate it. One of the great things about The Fix is that we get the opportunity to really see what masters like John Paul are doing and, you know, to give it a try ourselves. So I appreciate it. And um, for our viewers, if you like this episode, I'd ask you to jump on over to iTunes and say some nice things about it. Um, That will help us in the future to bring you even more exciting guests like John Paul Caponegro. And I will see you all next week for another episode of The Fix. Before I go, I want to be sure that, again, you have that website address. John Paul, what's your website address? JohnPaulCaponegro.com. Okay, say goodbye to the folks. Thanks for tuning in today. And thank you, Jan, for sharing all this information with so many of the people. It's, it's always a pleasure and you make it fun. So thank you. Thank you.